Hey, welcome to a Zion People podcast. I am Keelan, an intern at Zion Church, and this is our latest message. The team here hope the message challenges you, inspires you, but most of all, builds your faith. Enjoy the message. It's a beautiful story. It's kind of like four acts in a play. Has anyone ever been to a live performance of a stage play that has multiple acts? Come on, put your hand up. Haven't been for ages, but yeah, we should, we should do that. Anyway, um, it's like four acts in a play, and you see the end of the, the, the scene. Uh, come, there's a couple of scenes in each act, but at the end of the scene, there's kind of like this tension. Like as the lights fade out, what, what's going to happen next? And uh, so I really do hope that you've been reading the book of Ruth for your own uh, revelation as we've been doing these messages. And uh, I'm going to summarize at the end of what we've done, but today we're in Ruth chapter 4. So this is the fourth week, Ruth chapter 4. And one of the things that we've done as part of our series is each week we've invited a different person to come and present what we call an exegesis. Exegesis being uh, just an expository look at the, the key principles that might be uncovered in the text. So as I start, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite Paul up. Paul's been studying furiously this week uh, in the book of Ruth, and he's going to prepare, present what he's prepared as his exegesis. Why don't you give him a warm welcome? Come on. Good job, mate. Good job. Thank you. All right, good morning. Um, as I started to read through the fourth chapter of Ruth, uh, a few things jumped to mind. The first couple was position and providence. So we see right off the bat at the very start of the chapter that, the, that Boaz moves himself to the gate to wait for the guardian redeemer. Now, there is nothing in the story that tells us that that redeemer was going to be coming through that gate. You know, uh, he was on, Boaz himself was on the threshing floor the day before. So chances are, as he was too, wherever his might have been. Now, there had been a call on Boaz's life to redeem the land from Naomi and to marry Ruth. Um, so he obeys this call and positions himself in the most likely place to fulfill that calling. Now, if, if that hadn't have happened, if the Redeemer, the first Redeemer, hadn't have come through the gate, I can almost guarantee you that Boaz would have gone hunting. Um, and one thing to note is that... Oh, sorry, carrying on. Uh, the other thing that we see is the providence. So God's providence, of course, we read straight away that as Boaz sits down, the man literally walks through the gate. It even says just now, just as Boaz sits down. Um, so one thing I was thinking about was providence does not require position, and position does not demand providence. However, I do believe that God does honour our position when we submit ourselves to him. Now, I didn't ask for his permission, but Keelan, for instance, now I know that he's had a call in his life to preach to a great multitude of people. And so he's now positioned himself under Phil and Craig to learn and to begin to speak to us, and that's why he preached a few weeks ago. So I'll ask for forgiveness later. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing I noticed was the character of Boaz. Um, We read through chapter 2 and 3 and we already see how much of a cool man he is, that he honours God's laws and he goes even like above and beyond, not just to leave patches for them, but to actually drop pre-harvested grain behind. Um, We know that, and we read into chapter 4, that going forwards, that he he now has to honour 
the law, but he's also doing it by risking certain things. That there's going to be certain things in his life that he has to sacrifice. We also see that he's very keen to marry Ruth um, by jumping up and going that very day. You know, Naomi says um, to Ruth, sit still, for this very day he will sort it. Um, so the first sacrifice or potential sacrifice is that he goes to the first guardian redeemer and has the chance to lose Ruth. So the first guy even said yes at the beginning. And imagine that, you want to do something? And Oh, damn, he said yes, I can't. Um, but thankfully, for um, the first redeemer declines stating inheritance issues. See, another couple of sacrifices are by following the law, and he actually has these sacrifices, which I believe is part of the reason that first redeemer actually said no in the end. So what have we got? By following the law, any first male heir that he produces with Ruth um, actually gets all that land that he has to redeem from Ruth. Uh, Naomi, sorry. The other part is that, not that it says he's got any other children, but the firstborn son gets a double portion of any of his inheritance. Um, and the, the third one that I noticed was that with the law, they do this to honour the name of the dead. So not only will Boaz's child or firstborn son um, take, take the land, take a double portion of the inheritance, but he will also take the name of Elimelech. So he's, in some ways, by law, not actually Boaz's. So quite the sacrifice there to turn around and obey. Uh, the final point that I noticed was our total redeemers. We see Boaz as the redeemer, and we obviously see Jesus as his redeemer. Now, not just the similarities between the two, but the differences. You see, Boaz, all through chapter 2, 3, and 4, obeys the law obeys God and honours him through it. And so does Jesus all the way through the four Gospels. We see constantly, every time, and obviously Jesus to a much bigger extent. Um, we see Boaz as the earthly redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. And we see Christ as our heavenly redeemer. Um, and he came to redeem those the Father had given him. And we also see just as Ruth, Ruth got to approach him and suggest it through to Naomi's wisdom, and he followed through, but there was nothing Ruth could do from that point. Whereas for us, Christ actually did that 2,000 years ago. And in, in a chat that Phil and I with Mason had, we even saw that it was before the getting of time. So there, were, just like Ruth, there was nothing that we could actually do once, and it was all them. So we rely on Christ and Christ alone. Yeah. It uh, takes, a, takes a lot more work than four minutes to prepare that, to summarise that, to, to chat about it. So I really do appreciate that, Paul. Thanks for your, your work there. And, and to the others also that were part of the series that presented the exegesis, I, I do appreciate uh, just what you've, what you've shared with us. So today we want to unpack chapter four. So uh, hopefully you've got your Bibles and uh, we, can, we can have a look at what uh, chapter four says. But like I said before, this is the fourth act of the play, if you just think about it like a play, it's the fourth act of the play, and I just like to say, well, what, what were we left with as the lights faded at the end of Act chapter, Acts 3, which is chapter 3? Just look at the last verse of Ruth chapter 3, just swipe backwards or turn the page, it's right here. Naomi said to her, be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest 
until he has settled things today. Meaning that immediacy, the urgency, and as Paul said, you know, the character of Boaz was he was determined. He wanted to go after what he believed God had called him to. And, and so if you imagine, we're trying to create a little bit of interest in people and reading the scripture as it was written as a narrative and, and to, to find the layers of revelation that God's got in the, in the story. So think about this, you're left suspended and you, you wonder what's going to happen. Like I've said before in the, in the old days when TV would show you an episode on Tuesday night at 7.30 and it might be suspenseful and you get to 8.30 and it stops and you're like, what happens next? If you wait seven days. Remember the old days when you had to wait seven days for the next episode of the TV show? All the young ones are like, what? You just go next episode on Netflix. But here we are, the story the suspense and what happens. So, so I've suggest, I'm going to suggest to you that chapter 4 is act 4, and I've, I can see two distinct scenes in the act. Scene number one is what I've called the beauty of the redemptive process, the beauty of what God orchestrates in redeeming or saving or restoring the, the situation. And, and it's, it follows the usual TV drama kind of structure. You've got anticipation at the beginning because you're not quite sure what's happening. Then you've got a, a setup where, uh, as Paul says, the guys turn up there and are like, I wonder if, I wonder if the family redeemer is going to arrive. And lo and behold, he does. And you're like, oh, what a coincidence. And, and then you've got the, the testing of the, of the tension. And is he going to redeem it? And yes, he says he does. And then, and then actually, no, there's a, there's a false hope because he says he doesn't. And, and there's a rejection. And the, but all of a sudden, there's a counteroffer. And the, and the hero of the story rises to the fore. I won't spoil the end of it, but oh yeah, well, you know what happens. We see the saving of a beautiful young girl that once had no hope, but now has hope. All of this comes in scene one. So what is scene two? The closure of the play, the narrative of Ruth. I've simply called this scene the blessing. The first half of chapter four is scene one, the beauty of the redemptive process and the Second half of the chapter is what I'm calling the blessing, scene number two. And it's, it's a show-off of God's extravagant love. And, and what I want to say to you today is the big idea is that God's aim in redemption is your inclusion in his extravagant blessing. God's aim in redemption is your inclusion in his extravagant blessing. Some people might hear me say that and go, oh man, he's just doing another one of those prosperity messages where it's all about the blessing. Well, I want you to consider that narrative of Ruth because we started out with famine, death, and hopelessness. We walked through a season of barrenness with no children in the family. We came back, we see there's a return back with no certainty of what it was going to be like, except we knew there was a harvest, but clearly they're struggling, these two widows. It's an unknown future. So it's not all about the blessing. But the climax of the story, and the truth, guys, is the finish of your story will be the inclusion of you in God's extravagant blessing. Have you read the end of the book? We are invited to a feast with the King of kings and Lord of lords where we will worship him forever and we're included in this place of extravagant blessing in God. All of the blessings of Jesus Christ become ours. 
with no limit. But we know that the journey to get there requires challenge, requires testing, requires waiting, requires un- it requires uncertainty, it requires you know, a little bit of disappointment from time to time, and, and I'm not the only one, I'm sure, that experiences that in the journey of life. But the finish of the play, which is a beautiful picture of our lives, is the inclusion in the promises of God, which are yes and amen. Unfortunately, they're just not instant. So let's look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went down to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, Come here and sit down, friend. I'd like to talk with you. As Paul said, just by coincidence, just as it happened, the man turned up where Boaz was sitting. The the whole story just seems to be full of coincidence. By coincidence, Ruth is in Moab. As a Moabite woman, she just happens to marry a Jewish man who just happens to die, but she just happens to end up back in Bethlehem. There's, there's no coincidence. This is Paul's point, and as we discussed this the other afternoon and we talked about it, he, it was, he was convinced, and he convinced me, that God was in charge of the story. Perhaps you too could see that God's in charge of the story. God's the author of our lives, and he invites us to walk with him. He, but more than that, God's committed to walking with us through the trials and the challenges and the loneliness and the disappointment and the the failure and the death and and other situations. But what I want to point to is the drama, because every good play has drama, the drama of the family redeemer, the guy that turns up. In the New Living Translation, which I have here, Boaz calls him friend. But if you look at a more traditional translation, He calls out, come here, you so-and-so. This man's name is not in the Bible. So when you read the Bible, it's good to look for what's there, but it's really good to look for what's not there. And the narrator of the story, we, we, we think it might be Samuel who wrote this down, we're not sure, but the narrator of the story is very careful not to say his name. This is the guy, Craig Craig explained this last week in his message, in chapter 3, in the the role of the family redeemer. It's a great explanation of the law, which he pointed to in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Grab the message and have a listen to it. It helps to understand this idea of a family redeemer. But I want you to park this thought, because I'm going to come back to it soon. In Genesis 38 we read a story about a kinsman redeemer. It's the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Really interesting story. It doesn't go well, and then it gets worse, and then it gets resolved. I'll point to that later. In this scene, we need to zoom in on this guy, Mr. So-and-so. Let's call him Mr. So-and-so, just to be a little bit more respectful. In in, in verse 3, Boaz said to the family redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, you know Naomi, 
who came back from Moab, she is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line and I'm going to do it. And the man says, okay, I'll redeem it. Mr. So-and-so finally agrees to redeem the land. But he doesn't. And again, I just love the way that the Bible is, is, a, is a journey of discovery and, and that we might look for what's not in there as much as what is in there. Because I was left asking this question this week. Why has he not already done the redeeming? As Craig said last week, there's been a year in transition minimum because we've got harvest to harvest, which is an annual thing. So we've, he's had at least a year. He's part of the family. He knows the story of Naomi. He grew up and he knows their land. Why has he done nothing about it till now? Until Boaz initiates something. And Boaz says, all right, it's time for you to do this. And I wonder why that is. He says, look, in verse 5, of course, I'll do it. And then Boaz says, well, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, the foreigner, and that way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And then Mr. So-and-so says, oh, actually, no, nah, I, can't, I can't redeem it. And as Paul said, we're not 100% sure but it sounds like it's going to jeopardize his family inheritance. It might limit his ability to bless his children. It might open his children and his sons up to risk and exposure. We don't have all the details, but what we do know is he backs out. Why is that? Of course, a Jewish man raised with the law of God to suddenly go, well, actually, for a whole year to avoid Naomi, and then when he's challenged on it, to say yes and then to say no. The answer is found in the beginning of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. It was a time in the land where judges ruled the people. So it's a time of judges. We know this is a very, very bad time for the people of God. And if you look just at the last verse of Judges, which is on the facing page, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So in the middle of this time where Mr. So-and-so gets to choose what he does, he gets to choose to deny the laws of God, he gets to choose to deny his family, he gets to choose to avoid what is his responsibility to take care of widows and honor the dead. And he says, nah, I can't do it. I think my point is that when we think we know best, we often don't. In the time of judges, we see people doing what they wanted and God's purposes being avoided. So there's a transaction that happens in this redemptive process. And we see it in verse 7. I've quoted it here in the ESV. Ruth chapter 4, verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the matter of attesting in Israel. 
Now, for those of you that listened to last week's message, whether it was here or online, do you remember what Craig explained to us about the redeeming process that comes out of the book of Deuteronomy? If someone didn't do the redeeming they were supposed to, can anyone remember? Someone do with a sandal. Yeah. Slap him in the face with a sandal, and you call him, someone said it over here. The family of the unsandaled. That's right, sandalless. And you spit in their face. Deuteronomy 25. They're in the law. Mr. So-and-so knows that because he was raised up reciting the law. And I'm left wondering. He backs out of what is his obligation. And he knows the law. And he takes a step back. And he takes his sand off and he gives it to them. And I wonder if he inclines his head a bit to avoid the spit. Because he deserves it. Get yourself in the story. Understand the people. And as, as uh, Carla said, he becomes known as the family of the unsandal because it doesn't tell you he gets a sandal back. So he walks away from the elders of the city unsandaled. What's the point in the story here? We've got to understand that only God's ways will redeem us. Man's effort won't redeem us. Man's even preconceptions won't redeem us. When mankind, think about the time of Judges, and mankind chooses to do what's right in his eyes and not God's ways, there is no redemption. It fails. This man shows us that mankind has failed in redemption. What am I trying to say to us? Each one of us, we can't do enough to earn our own redemption. Can't earn your way into heaven by good works. But more than that, you can't save your family into heaven by your good works. For those of us that are parents, we have to learn that we can't save our kids. They have to come to the place where they choose their kinsman redeemer. For every single one of us, for each person created that is living on planet earth or has ever lived, each one has to find their kinsman redeemer so that they might have a hope of being saved. And the good news is the punchline of this whole series is that there is a kinsman redeemer and Paul pointed to it in his exegesis. The comparison between Boaz and Jesus Christ. That Boaz represents the opportunity for us to come before our kinsman redeemer and be accepted and received by the price he paid, not by what we did. Jesus Christ is the opportunity we have. And in Philippians chapter 2, we read about Jesus. It says, Jesus made himself nothing. By taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The Bible teaches us that that was the price, that was the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could be made for our kinsman redeemer to be made acceptable. My hope as I build a conclusion to our series is that in this story, and in your life, you would make that choice, that you would see the beauty of God's redemptive process. 
You see the beauty of what Jesus has made available and already done, as Paul said, already done, that all we would need to do is turn and find Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. So my first point out of Ruth chapter 4 is this, only God can redeem us. Let's search for the second point, and I'm still in verse 5, Ruth chapter 4 and verse 5. Because I started to ask myself, what is God's aim in redeeming us? Is it because he's lonely? Is it because he wants you to be comfortable? And I've discovered it's far more than that, and we see it in the story. So let's, let's comprehend the, 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 um, what we call the inheritance aspect, because you know Craig spelt it out last week and we've looked at it in the past, but the whole idea of this redemption is that the land would be retained for the sake of the family. Okay, so there's, there's a legal transaction that costs money, and it's all spelled out in the book, but it's a bit detailed to go into now, but it's a, a legal transaction. Boaz is buying that land, Craig explained this last week. He's paying the money to buy the land of Elimelech, and with that, he has to marry Ruth with the obligation to provide a son who will be the rightful heir, as my friend Paul explained. So the aim, listen to this, the aim of the kinsman redeemer is to provide your future children a connection with their rightful inheritance. The aim of a kinsman redeemer is to provide your future children with a connection to their rightful inheritance. Boaz is saying, I'm going to pay whatever it costs. Shells out the cash, gets the sandal, but I'm buying the right to honor your family. And then he says this, at great cost to me, I'm going to make sure you have a son who can carry on and honor the family forevermore. How's that? That's a good purpose, eh? People will be happy and people will be honored and they get to keep their land. But it's far more than that. So what I did, as is a good, uh, good thing to do if you're trying to study a passage of Scripture, is go and look at other translations. And when I look at the New American Standard Bible, which is a literal word-for-word translation similar to New King James, it says something different. Listen to this. If you're on your phone, you can just go to the top, change translation, Read the NASB. Boaz says to Mr. So-and-so, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabites, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Key thought there is on. We see it again in verse 10. So Mr. So-and-so pulls out. He's like, no, why? Oh, I'm not paying that price. That's way, way too spinny for me. Like, I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to make the cost. I don't want to jeopardize my family. I'm out. Check out, man. Boaz goes, cool, I'll do it. And he steps in. In verse 10, he says this to the witnesses. Moreover, same translation, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabites, the widow of Malon, to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Same phrase. Here's the key thought. The son who will be born will be raised on the land he will inherit. 
He will work the land. Not a coincidence, maybe providence. The boy that was born, his name was Obed, which means servant. He will work this land. He will be alongside Boaz. He will learn the way to harvest the land. He will learn the way to honor God's law on the land. He will work on the land, but better than this, better than, better than just remaining the servant, there's something far, far greater that we need to see in the story. Obed will be raised on the land that will become his, and in doing so, he will learn to be the master of the land. This is God's aim, I think, in redemption. You're not saved by Jesus Christ into eternity just so that your comfort starts now and you can cruise your way to heaven. Not God's plan. He'll allow you to do that if you choose it. Because the bus ticket's paid for. Each one of us who chooses Jesus Christ to be our Savior and our Lord is saved into something far greater. We've been redeemed that we would be raised up to work the land that will become our inheritance. Not that we would remain servants forever, but that we would learn to become the masters to move in authority. This is an act of salvation. God is saying, come and be part of my family, be redeemed by Jesus Christ, but come and work the land. Come and advance my kingdom. Come and do more than just have a comfortable ride to heaven. It's far, far greater than that. God redeems us so we can be active heirs in establishing his kingdom, which is our inheritance. We work on the land so we can learn to be masters of the land. We've been saved into God's family so that we can be his kingdom of priests and rulers, which means we reign as his designated heirs on earth. That's why we pray thy kingdom come here. Now, through us. So you remember my first point was only God can redeem us. My second point is that God redeems us so we can inherit his promises. Scene one of this fourth act of the book of Ruth shows us the beauty of the redemptive process, the toing and the froing and the tension, the understanding of the law and the requirements of God and the willingness of a man to say, I'll pay the price. It's beautiful. And there we have the conclusion of scene one in act four. Boaz is standing there with the sandal and he says, see, I have done it. I have paid the price that will allow this future son to become the master of Elimelech's land. So small golf clap at the end of the scene. Curtains fall, lights come down. We wonder what's happening next because we've got the final scene of the story. And I've called it the blessing. I want you to see why I've called it the blessing. It starts in verse 11. Scene two of this fourth scene starts in verse 11. All the elders and the people are standing around. The town gate was a place of transaction. It's where people gathered to see what was going on. The elders sat there to help ratify the decisions. All the townspeople and the elders prophesy something significant over this union that I want us to see. May the Lord, it says, and look at what they're saying. We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman, Ruth, make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, 
from whom all the nation of Israel descended. Well, why is that there? Why would they say that? Like, why don't they depict someone else? Well, let's look at the story. Who is Rachel and Leah? They're the daughters of Laban who ended up married to Jacob. You remember the story, Jacob went away and he worked for seven years for Rachel and he got tricked and he married Leah and he had to work for another seven years and he got Rachel and he had to work for some more time before he finally ran away. But he took his wives with him. Look at the significance. Leah, the older sister Leah, gave birth to the first four sons of Jacob. Who can remember what the first four sons are? Number one. Bible test, Reuben, firstborn, secondborn, Simeon, thirdborn, Levi, fourthborn, Judah. Leah gives birth to Judah, who we see is the descendant before Boaz. So they're saying to Boaz, may your house be as fruitful as your forefather's house. What about Rachel? Why would you mention Rachel? Well, if you remember, the tragedy of Rachel's life as the wife of Jacob was she was the one he loved the most, and yet she couldn't give him a son. She's living in the midst of his love and his comfort and his security, and yet she can't give him the very thing she knows will give her honor. She is without honor because she is barren. She thought God had abandoned her. And in Genesis chapter 30, you read that God heard the cries of her heart and he opened her womb. And who was born? Joseph. Joseph, who was the head of the tribe who then saw the Ephrathites. And if you look at Ruth, the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, Elimelech comes from the tribe of the Ephrathites. So what they're saying is, may your father and your father bring blessing to your home. It's a prophetic promise of the extent of God's blessing that comes on this union because Boaz has done something that not only honors man, but honors God. It's a really rich blessing. And more than that, the blessing of the promise of the tribe of Judah would be that out of the tribe of Judah would rise one as a seed who would hold on to the scepter of, of, of the king for eternity. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. And Boaz, this will continue because you have chosen to honor God. There's depth in this story. Again, what's not in the story? Ruth was married to Marlon for 10 years. Remember the other sister? What was the other sister-in-law? What was her name? Orpah. She was married to Kilion. Where's Kilion in the story? Not there. What's not in the story? So that people prophesy. May you be fruitful like Rachel and Leah. And what happens? You can read it in verse 13. The Lord opens up the womb of Ruth who had been barren for 10 years in Moab. She'd been married to Marlon for 10 years. 
knowing that the only way she would honor her husband to honor her dead father-in-law would be to raise up a son out of her womb for 10 years. She's barren. But in this process, under this prophetic prayer, the Lord opens her womb and she brings about the son who is Obed. What I love about the connection of the family and the history and the genealogy and the blessings and the prophecies of God is we see we're not saved in isolation. We're redeemed and saved into God's family. We're part of the collective of God's story. Life is far greater than just your narrative. Your narrative is important, but it's part of a wider narrative. Each one of us is not saved into isolation, but we're connected with each other as we're redeemed into God's family. And the second part of this prophecy is just as important as the first. Because the people then say, in verse 11, May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez. Perez whom Tamar bore to her father-in-law Judah. Well, that sounds weird. Genesis 38. It's a really weird story. I encourage you to go and read Genesis 38 and understand the principle of the kinsman redeemer that was demanded by God in Genesis 38. Judah's first son marries Tamar, but can't have child, and he dies. So Judah says to brother number two, hey, boy, get in there, marry, marry your brother's wife and give him a son as the kinsman redeemer. And he tricks her. He deceives her. And God says, for that, my boy, you will die. And the Lord kills him. And Judah's kind of like, oh, I don't want to lose, I've lost my first son, I've lost my second son. I don't want to lose my third son. I'm taking him away and I'm hiding him. And Tamar, you will be shamed and you will live like a widow for the rest of your life. It's a really cool story. Trickery. Death. A woman who becomes a forgotten widow, pretends to be a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law, and yet at the end of the story, Judah says this, she is more righteous than I am. And what was the child that was birthed out of that union? Perez. I won't ruin the story for you because even the delivery of the twins is kind of weird. Go and read it for yourself. But Perez is recognized as the firstborn. May the blessing of Perez be the blessing of Boaz. This leads me kind of to the end of my, my message, which is really around the third point. We see the sovereignty of God, the providence of God orchestrating something. There's no coincidence. As Paul and I joked about it this week when we met, it's like, Bah humbug. There's no coincidence in the story. God is involved in the narrative. He's involved in every aspect of our lives. He's not in control, but he's involved. And even out of tragedy, even out of famine, even out of death, even out of divorce, even out of barrenness, even out of hopelessness, God is involved in working the narrative of our story that we would find redemption. But here's my third point. Why do I talk about the lineage? Why do I talk about the history? Why do I talk about the prophecy of the messianic saviour coming out of the line of David? Why bother with that? Here's my third point. 
your redemption isn't the end of the story. Your redemption, you were saved by Jesus Christ, not just for your comfort. Your redemption isn't the end of the story. Remember the whole point of this redemptive process, the beauty of it was that future children would be blessed by what you've done today, and that's the same for us. We need to remember only God can redeem us. We need to remember that God redeems us so we can inherit his promises. But we also need to remember that when we are redeemed, it's not the end of the story. We need to wake up and be active in the story. Take a wide-angle view of the narrative of God. Think wider than yourself. Think wider of your neighbor. Think wider. What is God doing, and why am I even in this town? Why am I part of this church family? Why am I part of my workplace? Why am I part of the plans of God? What's the wider narrative? As I said before, Judah was the great-grandson of Abraham who bore a son through Tamar. Tamar was a foreigner, a Gentile, not usually accepted. Here we see Boaz bringing in Ruth into the line of Jesus Christ. She was a foreigner, not normally received well, but and yet God has a plan. The great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth is David. David, the, and, and where, what comes out of David? What comes out of the line of David? The son of David, capital S. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, the son of God, flows out of the story. The son of God, who became the son of man, so that sons of men could become sons of God, all flows out of the story. You're redeemed for something far, far greater than your comfort. And I hope you see that, that there's an invitation here for you to go on the journey and be redeemed by Jesus Christ, your kinsman redeemer. The invitation is there. We've, we've journeyed through the chapters one to four. It's just been a short series, and I've, I've, I've loved studying it. And I would have even loved to slow it down and do four messages out of every chapter. But we haven't. We saw in the beginning, chapter one, the devotion of Ruth and her willingness to make a covenant to something greater than herself. In chapter 2, in week 2, Keelan came and shared a message, and he talked about the, the principle of gleaning, and the challenges that he presented was more around, well, where is your field, and where should you be? And I'm sitting in the front row, and I'm texting a guy on the other side of the church going, bro, this message is for you, because we'd just been praying into that, and God spoke out of the Scriptures into his circumstances through Keelan's message. Last week, chapter 3, Craig brought this um, unpacking of the, the law and the understanding of covering. As Ruth slips under the covers, you could be excused for thinking there's a little bit of hanky-panky going on. Not, not the truth. Craig showed us about the depth of the character of both Boaz and Ruth and how they both desired not to do things the wrong way, but to honor God and be blessed by God in the process. And finally today, we see that God's aim in your redemption is your inclusion in his extravagant goodness. Go back and listen to the messages. They're on the app, on YouTube. Find them however you need them. Listen to them again and find the message of Ruth for you. So as I close, I just want to ask you this. What about your story? What about your story? There's something that I can't avoid as I close the series. And funnily enough, I didn't find it in the book of Ruth, but I see it demonstrated in the book of Ruth. And for those of you taking notes, I want you to write down Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 48. Leviticus 25 verse 48. I mean, who the heck reads Leviticus? Like, seriously? 
Leviticus 25, verse 48. There's the law being unpacked, and it's about the redemption of those who are are, are broke or in famine. And if someone in your family is wealthy, then they need to be part of that process to restore you. If you have to sell yourself or if you have to sell your children because you can't pay your bills, then there's a process that God establishes. But here's the key that I found in verse 48 of Leviticus 25. You shall retain the right to your redemption. Every one of you shall retain the right to your redemption. What does it mean for us? I have to finish with this. Even after we choose to sell ourselves into sin, to ignore God and all that he's done for us, when we ignore the signs of God's infinite creation around us, disregard him to choose to put our priorities over his, when we choose to sin and sell ourselves into the bondage of sin, even then, every single one of us retains the right to redemption. Every person here, every person watching online that will ever watch this message, I'm speaking to you. We each retain the right to our redemption. God says, doesn't matter how bad it is, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you've come under, what you've partnered with, what you've agreed with, or what you've confessed out of your mouth, you still retain the right to your redemption. Point number one, only God can redeem us. Point number two, God wants to invite us in through redemption into his blessings. And point number three, we're part of something bigger. I want to say this. You can't be saved through the law. You can't be saved through your work, your effort, your job, your activities. You can't even be saved through the work of someone else. The pastor can't save you. Your husband or wife can't save you. Your mum or dad can't save you. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And he's a kinsman redeemer for everybody. If they would choose to come under his redemption and be lifted up through his saving grace. There's much more I could say. But what I want to finish with, I want you to rest in this because we've got to wait for lunch. So we're not in a hurry. But I prepared a video. No, I didn't. I found a video. I didn't make this. Craig's clever. I didn't make this. I found it. And this is the song, The Blessing, which many of you will have heard over lockdown, and, and uh, you might as well get it playing. Um, but this is the New Zealand version, The Blessing Aotearoa, the churches of New Zealand who come together. And I'm just asking they would sing this blessing over you, that at the end of the series of Ruth, you would understand that there is a God in heaven who loves you, who has done everything necessary for your redemption to invite you in to his family. May the Lord bless you as you listen to the words of Scripture sung by the churches of New Zealand. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our message and it inspired you. Stay connected and get amongst our family. Find us on Facebook, YouTube or our app. We are Zion people.